Welcome to episode 55 of Coffee Pods and Wads, the fifth and final in the train series. We've had experts in nutrition, recovery, mindset, aerobic capacity, and today's episode, strength and gymnastics. All episodes are there to be listened to and re-listened to whenever you feel the need. Um, we're sponsored by Rain Body Fuel, the ultimate fitness-focused drink to support performance, and by Ollie Clothing, a brand dedicated to helping you in your pursuit of success, whatever that looks like. They make products that support active endeavors and they create content that adds clarity and convenience to the self-development process this week's guest is nathan bird he's a gymnastics guru he's been on seminar staff for years he's traveled basically everywhere delivering workshops and seminars he also coaches athletes including laura hovart and nico Billadell, i definitely butchered that um in this episode we dive into how nathan became involved in coaching in the first place and we tackle some common issues in gymnastics and strength coaching and training. Enjoy, listen, share, and tag. I'm off to do some eccentric pull-ups. I started as often as an excuse to talk to people that I admire or people that like, you know, are kind of industry leaders, I guess. And I think after oh, I'd say about like three months of trying to work out why Laura Hovart kept putting in little bird emojis in all of her stories. <laughs> I, f- <laughs> I figured out who you were. <laughs> yeah. So it's exciting for me to have you on. Um, so starting off easy, do you drink a lot of coffee? I drink a lot of coffee. Um, there's a long running joke with the guys who work for me on the seminar. So the guys, especially my European staff, um, if I don't start my seminar with a coffee, it's not going to be a great seminar. Uh, normally by about 10, half past 10, I'm four or five coffees deep by about that time uh, on oh, a okay. seminar. So I'm a big coffee drinker. And are you like a coffee snob or are you like just get it in and don't care what it is? Do, do you know what? Because I travel so much, um, people always say Starbucks coffee's crap. And I would agree with them it's crap, but it's consistently crap. Because <laughs> if you go to a different coffee shop, uh, you can get something even worse. So then when they, they say, hey, w- what coffee would you like? I was just like, I'll take a Starbucks because I know what I'm going to get. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that standard of coffee at the moment. When I'm working, I just need it. But then I'm very happy to have some different flavors, different coffees as well. Yeah, I think like Starbucks' unique selling point is its consistency. It's like, you know, yeah. you, could go, you could be in a Starbucks in Italy or a Starbucks in Greece or America. It's going to be the exact same thing. So I think, yeah, it's exactly the same. consistency gets get. out of a hole. Like, um, I love hearing about favorite coffee moments or maybe something somewhere you were where you had a coffee. Like it might not specifically be the coffee, but maybe who you were with or something that happened okay. or a place you were. Is there anything okay. that stands out? So for me, everything's around coffee anyway. I'm always having coffee. Uh, I used to live out in the Middle East. I open CrossFit gyms in the Middle East. So the way of socializing out there was through coffee. Um, uh, I did a seminar, I reckon it was 2016 or 17 in Saudi Arabia. And that was the first time I was introduced to, I didn't even know, I can't even remember what it's called, where they put it into like, basically it looks like your chemistry lab from school where you've got the, the, the flask mug coming up and then you've got the tube coming through yeah. and then it drips out. Do you know what it's called? No, so what I was talking about though, it's like a Breaking Bad style way of making coffee. Yeah, so, and it was the first time I had one, but it was super strong, great flavor. We were outside, it was, I don't know, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., must have been about 35, almost 40 degree heat at night. Um, but uh, the guy who was actually having uh, the coffee with me is actually one of my athletes now. He won fittest in Saudi Arabia uh, this year. Unfortunately, we're going to the games with yeah. fittest in Saudi, but um, 
it was with him, nice relaxed coffee. But the first time I was introduced to something different with coffee, which I quite like. That's cool. Yeah, I think, have you ever had like Turkish coffee? Yep, Turkish coffee and Arabic coffee. So Arabic coffee is like a, a yellow coffee. And if you go into an Arabic restaurant, you get given like a, almost like a, a shot glass of coffee. And yeah. then they pour it up. And all you do is pick it up and do this, like twizzle it. And, um, and then they'll just come keep filling up, keep filling up. But it is like four or five times stronger than any other coffee. Yeah, I, um, I had a Turkish coffee once okay. and it was, Jesus Christ, it blew my head off. And like, I'd yeah. be fairly fine with it. But like, yeah. um, it's so, even just the, the taste is so yeah. intense, like so and strong. Thick as well. yeah. yeah, I remember I, it came up, it came over the table. I was like, "Oh, Turkish coffee." I never had that. I'll try that. Whatever. It came over the table. My wife was like, "You regret this, don't you?" I was like, "No, it's fine." And like, I had to pretend that I was totally <laughs> fine with it. She was like, "It looks horrible." No, it's really nice. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, do you? So you've obviously had like, I suppose, a unique opportunity to travel and to explore like different parts of the world like either through your own coaching, through seminars, through, like you mentioned, gyms in the Middle East and stuff there. Is there anything that really stands out as like a pinch me moment along your travels? Um, being in Kuwait was my first step, which got me working with CrossFit HQ uh, when it was CrossFit Gymnastics. Um, so that was a big stepping stone in my career. It was taking the dive to move to the Middle East and being in Kuwait. Um, uh, but it's given me a, a, a large scope to go and work in every continent, um, many, many different countries. Um, every country has a specific thing that stands out to you, depending on who you're with um, mm. or, or what you're doing. Um, the people make it just as much as the, the places that you go. Uh, I recently did a seminar in Russia, but Rudy, my Russian translator, he makes that location for me every time. Um, as for South Africa, uh, I would always put it as my number one place. Um, to go there is, you can go on safari, you can go down by the beach. It's a beautiful country. It's amazing food. We're amazing on the exchange rate. So that's another amazing experience. Um, I remember, I think it was 2018, I, I did, I've been doing back-to-back -back seminars for quite a long time now, but in 2018, I did something like, uh, I was in the States, I flew back to Europe, I flew to New Zealand for a seminar and the following weekend I was in France. Um, so to only be in New Zealand for like three to four days uh, on long haul flights, is, it was a bit surreal as well because I went down to see Hobbiton and uh, I, I was in, working in Auckland. So it's just being able to see different things that you wouldn't, I've been out before, uh, New Zealand before, I've been on rugby tour in New Zealand. Um, when I was younger, but to, to do it for work is always something slightly different. And you're, and you're completely in control of what you see and where you go around that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, the people make it, the people you see make it. You mentioned there that when you're in Russia, you had a translator. What's it like coaching a seminar through someone else? Like it must yeah, be, okay. it must be tricky. It, it is tricky. Um, uh, from CrossFit Gymnastics and now the gymnastics course, I've probably worked the most with translated courses or translations. Uh, the reason being is uh, being based in Europe, we've got multiple languages over here. Is over the state side, there's nothing needed to be translated apart from South America. But we've got Juan, who's in South America, doing a great job just leading the course in Spanish. So for me, there's like Russian, Spanish, Portuguese. Um, we have done one German translated course, although everyone in Germany just they, they're so good at listening and, mm. and learning in English, they're all great there. Um, so that uh, Italian, there's so many different languages that I've worked with, uh, Ukrainian. Um, but what happens here is that I talk and they talk, I talk and they talk. So then therefore my flow of conversation 
some it gets slowed down and I have to control the content what I give but at the same time um, it gives you that second opportunity to think uh, am I on track or where I want to go yeah, yeah. is this group learning with me or do I need to change the direction of what I'm going so there's a benefit to that as well um, Rudy the guy I talk about in Russia was he was he was the second translator I worked no third translator I worked with I worked with a French guy a Polish guy and then and then Rudy and when I first started with him uh, we were talking and I was leading the seminar. I would talk and then he would start talking halfway through my sentence. Oh, yeah. And I kind of looked at him. I'm like, what's going on? And then he's like, oh, uh, there's, I said, there's no way you're translating everything I'm saying. <laughs> and then uh, there's another guy there who speaks Russian and English. And, and he goes, he's translated everything you're saying. I was like, shut the front door. No way. I was like, this guy can listen to what I'm saying and speak his own language at the same time. So wow. all of a sudden I'm like saving time as yeah. we're going through translation because this guy used to, translate at like a super high level before CrossFit. He found CrossFit. He then started uh, translating on the level ones. And then he came in as my translator that weekend for, that was St. Petersburg, the first, my first Russian seminar. Um, but yeah, great job. And, that, and every translator I work with, they always do a fantastic job. They've got a much harder job than me on that weekend. It's super tiring, draining for them. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. Um, I think like with podcasts then if you're traveling a lot do you listen to a lot of podcasts or do you i know other people i've spoken to who are in the kind of crossroad ground try to detach themselves from it totally when they're not say like at work they're not like you know totally zoned in all the time um, would you be like that do you know what so through my travels i've developed myself for a further education even more than what i had before Mm-hmm. So instead of listening to podcasts previously, how, how, I don't know, how long do you feel that podcasts have been around for? Have they been a, a two-year thing, a five-year thing, a 10-year thing? Oh, like, I mean, 10 or 12 years, but like in the okay. mainstream, the last five years, it's blown up. Yeah. The last and two, then, it's blown up massively. Yeah, great. So I'd, I would agree. Say within the last one to two years, I've heard more about podcasts within CrossFit and functional fitness and, and training and coaching. Um, so it's opened my mind to listen to it a little bit more, but I haven't as of yet. Um, but I've been doing this job for uh, just almost six years or more than six years. So when I started, there wasn't really podcasts for me to really listen to. I had audiobooks, mm. or it was developed my education further. So the, with the opportunity in the UK where you can do um, like further education qualifications um, at distance learning, yeah. this is the step that I took to be able to spend more time on a plane, but not waste it. Um, so then went into like studying other stuff while I traveled. And so I wasn't listening to podcasts and then I was, when moved on to audio books. Um, so I used to take, uh, like uh, try and get an audio book done per week because of going traveling. That was when I was living in the UK, I was living in South Wales. So driving to the airport, being at the airport, flying yeah. car, car hire and driving. So it's audio books and there. I'm about to start back up again and I've actually bought myself a new motorbike. Uh, first seminar will be, uh, after COVID issues will be the 15th of August and I will ride the motorbike from the South of France to Recklinghausen in Germany, which is about 10, 11 hour ride. Um, and my plan for the rest of this year will be to ride my new motorbike, uh, to all the seminars to avoid airports and therefore many other people around me. Yeah, my good. way of social distancing. But yeah, you you can't seminars. distance yourself any more than being on a motorbike in fairness. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I took I took a I took an Indian motorbike. I took, I've got a Scout Bobber, but that's not very suitable for driving long distances. So I bought myself um, a BMW GS R1200 Adventure. So like the uh, you, you lost, you lost me at BMW. <laughs> yeah. So then I'm I'm, I'm going to be flying down there. 
yeah um, that's, that's really so good. then i may start listening to a podcast so it's, i'm open to listening to and suggestions i guess i'll start with yours yeah i can probably find a better one <laughs> have you have you done a lot of interviews then no first one uh so i've had like requests for a couple of podcasts um i've liked the idea of it i've also not been scared of it but been wary of potentially well what do i say there's so many things out there um many people saying other things i i, I like people to learn through coming to see me on seminars so i don't like to give too many too much away at the same time as well um but i do see a benefit in talking to people and if people are interested to talk to me then yeah great and you're the first person i'll come back and be like yes yeah, let's get it done and we're set why like why did you say yeah to this one when like I'm not this isn't me like fishing for a compliment or anything. I'm just curious about what like was there something happening where you just had a lull or you were like, I've got time. Yeah. Uh purely time. Um so last year I did forty three seminars last year. Jesus. Um so that was it was actually forty three seminars, but uh I think four or five of those weekends were uh, a Friday, Saturday seminar, a Friday seminar, and then a Saturday, Sunday seminar. So that would bring me down to uh, 38 weekends of, of work and travel. Um, so then I didn't have time. Uh, and then COVID happened, lockdown happened. Um, I had the first weekend of January off, and then I went into seminars again until I flew back from South Africa. And then as I landed from South Africa, lockdown happened. Um, and, and, and before that, my, my run through was something like somewhere in Europe, I went Moscow, Japan, Sydney, uh, Johannesburg, and then flew home and lockdown. And I said, that was the end of seminars. Like, okay, what can I do here? Uh, many people have asked me for a long period of time for further education, coaching development and actual coaching. Um, when they've come to the gymnastics course, they're like, hey, I want to learn more about this. And I'm like, it's in the pipeline. I'm working on it. There will be a course coming out. But bear with me. I haven't got it ready yet. Bear with me. And I think I said that since about the beginning of 2018. Um, so as soon as lockdown happened, I was like, okay, sit down, get something done. Uh, and I'm very privileged and lucky that that is now actually a CrossFit preferred course as well. Um, so that is out there as a coach development course. However, um, I had a couple of requests during that period of time, which I would have loved to have spoken to people. However, I was literally working on my computer 15, 16, 17 hours days. I lived, uh, in my hometown in Bournemouth with two other guys. Um, they were a big turning point in my life. They were a great support system to me. Um, I appreciate everything they did for me because they, they basically made sure that I ate and I drank every day whilst doing this course. Um, and to the point where I completed the course, I released the course, I've moved to France and then you messaged and therefore it was the perfect timing. Yeah, so all timing and obviously the instant rapport that we built up over like one message, obviously the, the visible, tangible yeah. chemistry in that one message made it as well, obviously. Um, some people like have no problem like jumping on and chatting and you know, they're just, they're just like, hey, yeah, cool, talk about whatever, don't care. And then other people, especially like coaches and stuff who I think one would assume like, oh, they're going to be totally fine with it. They kind of have a reservation. I think, I don't know, is it like, sitting in front of the microphone, some of them don't like don't feel comfortable. Some of them just flat out are like, no, I yeah. can't talk in front of a microphone. Are you have you any reservations about doing it? Or are you kind of like, you know, is it just like you what you said, but you don't want to say too much about it? No, I um I'm very wary that I can sometimes be opinionated and maybe say the a, a wrong opinion to someone. Um uh, I whenever I say something 
in relation to being in front of people or to the public and, or, or the CrossFit community. Um, uh, I'm not censored in what I say, it's just I make sure that what I say is I know is fact. Yeah. So I would never go into a seminar and say, I think you should be doing this because many coaches say that they think people should be doing something. But, well, if you think it, then I'll keep it to myself. But yeah. if I know it, I'll let you know that. So when I coach the seminars, I know this. Sports science has told us. That's why I'm telling you. Yeah, um, so in terms of that, when I'm talking freely, uh, if it's a point of, a, of opinion, people can take your opinions very differently. But yeah. if it's a fact, then they can always take your fact. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think though, to be fair, especially with podcasts, I think because it's not like, you know, the news or it's not like, you know, something yeah. that's deliberately factual. It's, you know, it's kind of an antidote to that where you can kind of get to know, I suppose yeah, people would be more interested in your opinion on something like whether you think, I don't know, butterfly pull-ups are as important as some people do. Like people would be interested in your opinion on that rather than, I suppose, uh, the official facts and figures on it that like you as a coach like well if you were doing it what would you do you know i think that's that's people love that kind of maybe it makes the person more attainable or more like relatable okay, or something, yeah. you know that kind of way like i think that's kind of the fun bit but i think as well people give me the benefit of the doubt where if you say something on the line people would be like whoa well i'll judge them off the rest of the of the rest of the conversation rather than that one second you know yeah. um how did you wind up like so you've mentioned there that you've had you know russia south africa italy Spain, you've you know America, Japan was a random one that stood out to me. Like, how did you start off? I suppose like you start off, I assume training CrossFit, then move into coaching it, and then find yourself on a flight to Japan to deliver a seminar. Like, what was that journey like? Um, so my journey very started very young within the fitness industry i was very lucky by um a, a man called mark daly who was the gym manager of a, a, a facility in bournemouth which was a it was like a clay t- court um tennis uh with a, a like a, a a high-end gym high-end members very nice people um but he was the gym manager there and he uh, his wife worked with my dad and I was 14 at the time. And basically he offered through his wife to my dad for me to do work experience. Cause he knew I was interested in sport or what I was doing was rugby and athletic or any sport possible. I was always doing it. So he offered me the opportunity to come and basically shadow through the summer and, and to like be there and just free work experience. But at the end of the summer, he paid me for the work that I completed. Um, sorry, I just need to make sure my phone's on charge. He, uh, he paid me for the work that I completed and then I continued uh, shadowing him thereafter, learning more about like fitness instruction, personal training. And then obviously I saw the tennis coaches, so then a, a coaching side as well. Um, and then I went in to become a personal trainer. Then I went, um, I've worked at um, uh, Lilliput Health, a sports injury clinic, which is also in my hometown as well. So from my studies coming from that and then developing further the studies that I've done through whilst I'm traveling, um, I moved to the Middle East in, uh, well, I can't remember now, end of 2012. Did you, were you doing all that whilst, while in school, like all the, the yes. tennis club yes. and all that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. It takes a lot of dedication then to keep, like, to keep yeah. the candles burning, kind of. So it was my initial, like, my initiation into the fitness industry. I went into personal training, then went into strength conditioning, coaching, and coaching. Um, and I found CrossFit. Um, I found CrossFit. Uh, myself in 2010 2011 
doing it myself a bit on and off. I, I came actually from doing a lot of bodybuilding um, after playing rugby because every rugby player who plays scrum half wants to look good as well at the same time. And that was the downfall of that. So that was part of my training. And then my training adapted to become more functional fitness. And that's when I found CrossFit. And then from there, I started doing CrossFit, my local CrossFit gym. Um, amongst this, I had a broken leg, which meant it took me away from the industry. And then eventually I came back into the industry. But um, the long and short of it, I got married young and divorced very young at very close to each other and the point that when I got divorced is when I moved to the Middle East I moved to the Middle East to basically be like hey this is what you really wanted to do let's just make sure you do what you wanted to do yeah. and when I moved to the Middle East um, I, I took the position of head coach at CrossFit Flair I helped them lay out the facility set up the facility um, build the membership base up to what it was before I left um, but when I was there that's when I met the gymnastics course um, uh, sorry CrossFit Gymnastics as, as originally there um, and my colleague, best friend, business partner, Chuck, uh, um, he was a lead coach there that weekend. And at the end of the seminar, asked if I would be interested in interning. He said he didn't know when, didn't know where, um, but would I be interested? And I said, yes, absolutely. Let's, let's what, do was it, what was it, do you think, that made him, like, what do you think he's um, on you? I had, the, I had a background experience in gymnastics as a kid, um, so I could move well. Um, I had a lot of experience of coaching, communicating with people, um, and uh, that uh, I, I guess he could have seen that within myself, that the way I coach, the way I communicated. Whenever I bring on a member of staff, nine times out of ten, it isn't someone who hasn't asked for the job. It's I've seen someone on the course. Um, it's the way they've coached. It's the way they've presented about themselves. Mm. Um, it, may, it may be their gymnastic ability, but it's the combination of everything. Um, and it's, and it's the, it's the lack of ego, but the ego is the, it's the, the right person who also works within the team, if that makes sense. And I guess yeah, maybe no. something like that yeah. he saw. Yeah, that's good. Um, was there a moment so, then like, like say when you're coaching, say in Bournemouth in the Middle East or whatever, was there a moment where you were like, okay, yeah, this is, this is my vocation. Like, this is what I've, this is what I'm yeah. supposed to do. So in the Middle East, uh, this is when I was training all the time, two, three times a day. I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I was being the CrossFitter. I was, um, I was doing everything CrossFit. I was, I was waking up in the morning, going to train. We would go drinks with the boys. We'd sometimes put a sled on our back and drag a sled to Starbucks to get a nice coffee. We'd get back, you sleep on the couch, you eat again, you train again, you get ready to coach, you do some coaching, you might jump in the even session. Like, you, there was just a lot of training, a lot of coaching. It was just, it was everything CrossFit. Um, and then I did the Battle of the East competition, which was in Kuwait. And there were some really great athletes there, um, games athletes today, um, great boys. And I did well in the competition. However, I would never beat them. I could see that me as a, as my stature, my position, it would, I, I could beat them potentially one day. Um, but the amount of injuries that I picked up from rugby and the amount of little niggles that I pick up along mm. the way from just training in general, if I was to put all that effort in the previous injuries that I've had in rugby will come back and become the worst injury. And I knew that I wouldn't have the ability to be able to beat these guys. And it was that day that I then said, I will focus on being a coach, a better coach and the best coach I can be rather than being an athlete. And I think it was within a, a six weeks is when I then did gymnastics, uh, CrossFit gymnastics. And that's when everything else took place from thereafter. Yeah. It, like, is it intimidating? Like, 
coaching coaches, like rather than coaching, say, like lay people. Like if you tell me something about, you know, if you if you come over to me when I'm doing pull-ups or whatever and you explain something to me that will improve it and help it or whatever, I suppose I'm instantly going to be like, oh, Jesus, that's like Nathan Burt is telling me how to do pull-ups. Like he knows what he's talking about. Like I suppose you've got an element of that. If someone's going to a seminar, they trust the seminar uh the person giving the seminar to know what they're talking about. But like, I'd still find it intimidating talking to someone who already knows a lot. And then, you know, like, is there any, any kind of element of that for you or has there ever been? I I think um, when it first started to happen, um, there's, there's always that uh, uncertainty. There's that like that imposter syndrome where you feel like, do I really know what I'm saying? Like, I, I know I've studied it. I've, I've looked at it. I've, I've understood everything and I'm a hundred percent certain on everything that I coach. And I'm so confident and certain now because of the way I've gone through that process. Yeah. But along that process, you do doubt yourself. Everyone, every coach out there will doubt themselves, but to believe in yourself and to back yourself up. And that's why I love a science-based approach of really understanding everything that you do have reason behind everything you say. And I'm very open with my athletes. If there's something that I want to do or try, there'll be a reason behind it, but I may not know if it's going to work or not. But if we work together, what I've started to find out is that, yeah, it works well, or sometimes it doesn't work, or maybe it works with this athlete, or Mm. maybe it does work, but I haven't delivered it correctly to this one athlete. I need to change what I've done. But nine times out of 10, it's always me. It's my fault. If something didn't work, it's my fault. And if you learn that along the way, then there's no reason why every coach can't be a fantastic coach. And it's about how you deliver it. And coaches are always looking for the tiny little things, the tiny little fixes, the tiny, what's the best technique for a pull-up? Do you know what? How do you, if you know the best technique, do you know how to tell someone else what the best technique is? Or do you just know what it is? Um, There's many other deeper things that we want to develop within coaching rather than just that movement. Now I get the best of both worlds when I coach the gymnastics course is that, um, I'm getting to teach the technicality of gymnastics movements, um, but I also get to coach how to coach those technicalities yeah, yeah. of the gymnastics. Yeah, I think that the thing that a lot of people have, even like I teach like primary school kids, so like I have it a lot where you get that curse of knowledge where like you're explaining something to them and they're like, "But well, why is it like that?" And you're like, "I don't know. It just is. Like that's just the way you know. Like because it's been so long." <laughs> thought like if i have a seven month old daughter if i was trying to explain to her how to walk i'd be like you just walk like you just stand up and move you know like because it's so ingrained exactly that yeah and i do exactly that when i when i'm on the gymnastics course and we go into handstand walk i teach people how to walk i teach them how to lean weight distribute and then take a stride forward and i'm like all right now do this like we break it down into our hands and finding weight distribution and balance through the fingertips and, and literally learning how to walk um, it's the same principles. It's just mm. that we do something so naturally, we need to break it down. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, where was the idea for bird box coaching born out of? Then was it like a? Did, did you see a gap in the market, or did you think that you just like were people approaching um, you consistently enough that you thought like, okay, I need to start something here? Yeah. yeah. So I think from twenty early twenty seventeen, maybe even late twenty sixteen. I would say late 2016 was when people started to like look for programming. Um, people were asking and asking and I'm like, uh, at first I was like, no, I don't do it. No, I don't do it. I haven't got time. No, I don't do it. Yeah. Um, and then eventually it came in to be like, uh, yeah, I'll consider it. I'm working through it. 
Um, there was one guy in the Middle East that did a seminar in Qatar. His name was Ivan, really nice guy, South African guy. And he's asked me for programming. And he was the one that first made me start to think about it. And he said um, that he had patellar tendinopathy. So therefore, he would have needed to do rehabilitation into the training program. So I was kind of like, oh, this is, this is more interesting to me than yeah, just yeah. doing a, a, just a normal training program. But I didn't pull my finger out my bum. I was just a little, it wasn't lazy at all. I was just doing a thousand and one things and didn't have the time for it. Mm. Um, I then did a seminar. I believe it was, it was definitely winter time of 2017, maybe beginning of 2018. Um, I think it was a beginning of 2018 because it was during the open and it was Nico, um, who's now my athlete. Um, he was a good athlete. Uh, he was, he never went to regionals. He was a good standard athlete, but we took him to the games last year. So we took him from that to the games. Um, but that wasn't me. Um, I was his coach, but it was the determination of him and his potential. And we just unlocked potential. That's purely it. it yeah. He is the guy and, and, and he's got further to go. Um, I'm sure of it. He's got much further to go. Um, him and Sunna, um, his partner, Sunna, she, uh, she was also there at the time. And they, they asked me, and, and, and it was that point that, and he had the same thing. He had patellar tendinopathy, couldn't squat. He had all these issues um, with his knee and it, it had issues within his training. And he, I could see how he could do so much more in the open, but he couldn't qualify for anything because he had this issue with his knee. So therefore, mm. he could do strength training. So then he started with a rehabilitation program into a, a training program and build him up. And then we took him to the games in 2019. So it's been a really good journey and development with him, but he was the main reason that made me to go, all right, I'm doing this. And then let's just get this done. And I took on, took on quite a few athletes at first. I did it at a really low price. And I said to them, everyone I've taken on, I was like, it's a low price for a reason. I'm, I'm playing here. I, yeah. I don't know the right, I'd, I prefer to do something well and I might have to change things. And I think I over delivered, even if I was charging the, the normal price of what people were doing. I was like giving feedback every day. I was analyzing every video. And I was charging anything from like 30 pound to 50 pound per month for a lot of work. Um, and I went up to maybe 75 athletes and I dwindled it right the way back in and down now, nice and tight to allow me to do other things. And I'm considering maybe taking on one or two more eventually mm. in the future. But it's those guys that pushed me to be able to really start and move forward with bird box programming. Uh, is it a, like, do you see it as a coup then or like, uh, you know, kind of I don't know I guess a sense of like you know that what you're doing is right and that it's working when someone like Laura Hofer comes along and says like oh I want to I want to be coached like are you kind of like oh shit or like I mean I asked about intimidation when you're coaching coaches is it when when she's such a household name already is it kind of like oh what if I mess this up uh Laura is a fantastic girl, uh, same as Sun and Nico and every other athlete I work with. They're, they're all fantastic individuals and they're individuals. To me, they are, they are athletes. But when, when I speak to them, when I see them, they're not an athlete. They're an individual that has a goal and they want to get better. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how I see them. I knew Laura um, through Joat. Now, Joat's one of my assists for the gymnastics course. Um, he's a great coach. He's a great ability. He was the original coach for Laura when she came second at the CrossFit Games. He's a fantastic coach and he was a great asset to me. Um, their relationship as coach and athlete has changed and evolved and it is better for her to have him by my side and uh, basically because she trains at his gym in Budapest. Yeah. Um, he can watch stuff, he can talk to us still. So there's a great, there's like a dynamic across, 
um, but I'm doing the programming and I'm working with her on that other other end. And then yeah. I'll speak to her as much as I can and see her as much as I can. But she came, uh, first of all, she came to Vienna, uh, 20, I think it was 2016. Joat did the course. It was the first time I met Joat. And um, she came in, she asked if she could train, but the rule is when we're leaving the seminar, no one else is allowed into the box because people are paying $645 to do a course. We can't have flies on the wall sitting around listening to course material. So, but I didn't know who she was at this time. This is before she came second at the game. So I apologized. I said, no, you can't. She, just, she said, that's fine. She left the gym. I believe this was 2016, 2017. So before she was at the games. Um, and then uh, I had her arrive um, to the, oh no, I did a seminar in uh, Budapest at Joet's box and she came into the gym and I was like, hey Laura, obviously I know who she is now because she's a games athlete. And she turned around to me and was like, Birdie, do you not, do you not remember who I am? And I'm like, yeah, of course, you're Laura. She's like, no, you saw me in Vienna. And it was obviously before she came famous, before she went to the games and I was like, and then as soon as she said it, I, it dropped immediately because I knew Joat was there and I knew she, he came with a girl and I just didn't put two and two together who that girl was on that day, but it was her. Um, and I was like, I am so sorry. Um, but she was like, no, that's fine. That's how it is. There's no problem at all. I saw her that weekend and I worked with her and her brother a little bit that, that weekend when I did the seminar, just specifically around one of her biggest weaknesses, which is handstand push-ups, um, which I'm very happy to say is, is really developing into a new strength, um, but still has some time to go. But, that, but everything does. Um, and we've been like with communication since then. And then I had another seminar in Vienna and she came to that seminar in Vienna because I had Joak come and uh, assist me on that weekend. And she came and participated for the whole weekend. And I believe that maybe from doing that weekend, she could understand more of the philosophy of how I coach, um, my coaching style, the reasons why we want to do things in gymnastics the way I coach them. And I feel that she brought into what was needed to develop her from there on in. Um, we remained in communication. Um, and then after the games, I saw her at the games. And then after the games this year, we, we, we spoke more. Joak came into doing some more program with her. And then from uh, Sid onwards, I've been programming everything for her. Yeah, like as you expect, I got a lot of messages or a lot of like responses to my question box, like specifically about her, because I think people kind of tend to gravitate towards her because I suppose she's got that, like, well, there's a lot of things going on. I think like one, she's got that kind of star quality where like she's a performer and she's good and she's consistently Absolutely. good. And then as well, she's very unassuming and she's very humble and she's very like, you know, cool with it. Like she's not like showy or she's not, you know, and I think she's honest yeah. with like in the was it the fittest in Dubai documentary from like two years ago or whatever where I think handstands push-ups became a big issue in that thing in that documentary yeah. but like she was the kind of focal point of that documentary and she's just she's just so likable and so like it's so she's easy to gravitate person. towards her yeah but like I guess if you have those type of athletes that are ever moments where you're kind of like you know the just that pressure, I suppose it's one thing, say with Nico, someone who's like, you know, almost there and then you get them there and there's that like, you know, you're just kind of helping them over the line and you're pushing them to the next step or whatever. But then for her, when she's so close to the top and it's it's really the minutia that you're talking about to make those, I guess the tiny little tweaks that you need. And you mentioned there at the start when you're coaching someone, how you might be like, you know, look, this might work or, you know, like, we'll just see if this next thing works and maybe it doesn't work. Whereas 
I suppose I, I feel like if I was coaching someone like her, it's because it's those tiny, tiny little changes that you need to make. I just feel so much pressure. I'm like, God, I really hope it doesn't that she doesn't like slip back in her next ranking, in her next competition, or whatever, because of something that I've missed or something that I've overlooked or anything like that. Have you, have you ever had yeah. those kind of moments? Um, I've, I, the coaching an athlete isn't about what I program. However, sometimes working from distance obviously is about the program. And, and this is how the whole structure of the Bird Box Coaching Development course is, is, is focused around the coach-athlete relationship and how to develop the coach-athlete relationship. If I have a strong coach-athlete relationship with her and I talk to her about everything that we do and why we do it, then if we do make a mistake or not the correct step in the direction, it's not mm. the, it's not, I'm not going to say it's not the end of the world because I want to make her the best she possibly can today. Um, but I know there's a process to do it and she knows there's a process to do it. Um, but as long as I remain vigilant, I monitor everything, and it has a purpose and a structure, there is no reason why we will not move forward. But that's the, because I have the underpinning knowledge previous to allow me yeah. to know that we are making that correct direction forward. Now, this is the point where imposter syndrome comes in, is, this, is that you, if you doubt yourself, then you're doubting what you know. But if you're sure in what you know and sure what you want to deliver, and as long as you do that correctly and you portray that over to the athlete and they perform at how you want to perform, this, I'm sure that she will always be taking steps forward. Um, and we could see that kind of recently where she turned around and did the rogue invitational online and all of a sudden Laura's back up there. She mm-hmm. has a bad workout, which is with the handstand push-ups in. Um, but the, the point of her development after that workout, I said, this is my fault. The reason why it's my fault is that uh, Rogue wasn't the initial goal for training because stuff got moved around because of COVID-19. We didn't know it was going to happen. It was going to happen. We're gonna... Really, the focus was the games. We said, if you're doing Rogue, it's a step towards the games, but the games is the real focus this year. Um, so the point of her handstand push-up training phase and cycle was very much control, very much position. And as soon as we come into a high-volume workout mm-hmm. with strict handstand push-ups in, I didn't have her at the peak of a curve ready to go and do that workout. However, we are better than we were before, but we've still got somewhere else to go. If I had her in a different phase of that, we would have been even better on that work. And I said, this was my fault. However, the the key focus is the games because we sat down in January, I believe it was. And I said to her, what is the goal? And she looked straight back at me and she said, I want to win the CrossFit Games. And I was there like, oh, now she means it. And I'm in, like, let's do this. She's got more than enough ability. She's got more than enough heart and drive. And there's nothing stopping her from doing it. Um, it's just tidying up things really and, 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 and building along the way sure. um, I think like so I, I've broken the rest of the episode into like gymnastics and then a bit about strength as well um, sure. so I suppose like CrossFit gymnastics I think it's like it's an interesting one because like they're so intertwined and like there's so many skills that I suppose are you know, they're so transferable, but they're so scalable as well. Like, you know, anyone can do some variation of something that's, you know, gymnastics based in CrossFit, like whether it's, you know, just sit-ups or knees to elbows or toes to bar or whatever. Like, why do you think it gets such a bad rap from people who are looking in from the outside? Like you always hear or see those comments of like, you know, those like dickhead, no rep, like, oh, I counted no pull-ups there when someone's doing like 40 butterfly pull-ups for time or whatever or like people saying like oh enjoy your shoulder injuries like why do you think it gets such a bad rap from the outside 
Cool. Um, CrossFit doesn't give injuries. Bad coaching or bad programming gives injuries. So that's very clear and easy from the start. Um, some people do not like kipping. There is a purpose to kipping. We do strict pull-ups. Um, let's say an athlete can do Fran. My, my best Fran time myself is 2.05. Um, but if I was to do a strict Fran, my best strict Fran is 2.50. So then if I'm doing sub-free Fran strict, should I be kipping? Because I'm almost maintaining the intensity that I require. My purpose of kipping is to increase the intensity to go as fast as I possibly can, maximum output capacity, and therefore I'm looking at CrossFit. So the purpose of kipping is for intensity and intensity purposes only. Unfortunately, we see people coaching to help people achieve maybe their first pull-up or coaching kipping so it allows the athlete to do more volume, not increase the intensity. And we know that athlete may need to be scaling to something that's suitable to them so they maintain the intensity and achieve a volume at what their joint can hold. Yeah. And that's when we start coming into injury prevention and understanding what's around the joint. Does the athlete have a full functional range of motion? Do they have good biomechanics? If they don't have good biomechanics, we first of all want to be starting on the mobility of the joint, the stabilization of the joint, and then strengthening that joint before we even get them into full range of motion strict, which would be done alongside it but then we can bring kipping back in. Um, so it's, sometimes it's the misconception of when we should or how we should, or it's just the lack of ability or understanding of coach when they're coaching is like, hey, we should be coaching this kipping because that's CrossFit. And however, it's not. Yeah. The intensity is CrossFit. If you can do Fran in two minutes, 205, 210 strict, then do it strict. A great example of this is um, Carrie Pierce doing strict handstand push-ups at the yeah. end. Why does she do it? Because she can maintain the intensity doing them strict. Not because it was more efficient, not because it saved her, because that is when she can go the fastest. And that is what the test is. Yeah. Like, so do you think then that, say, if you can do like five strict pull ups, if, if one can do five strict pull ups, then they should be stopping at five kipping pull ups? And then, and so on. Or do you think, like, do you think there's a, you know, if there's a graph of like someone's uh, strict pull-ups and their kipping pull-ups, is there a point where they intersect or should it be a case of like, you know, you shouldn't be starting to even think about doing kipping pull-ups until you can do, definitely do a set of 10 strict pull-ups unbroken. It shouldn't even be coming into your realm of consciousness. Yes. So, um, we always say that we want to see one strict pull-up. When we say we want to see one strict pull-up, I want to see it in a perfect position. Now, what we often see is a breakdown of the midline, the ribcage flare into the sky, a pike of the hips, and the hollow position is not maintained. Um, if the athlete can't maintain a hollow position through one strict pull-up, they shouldn't be kipping. But the standard of what I see for a strict pull-up to what another coach may see to maybe a novice coach may see for a strict pull-up are three very different things. Yeah. Um, I'm looking for position and perfection through that one rep. Ideally, um, there was a great video that I posted of Nico doing a strict ring muscle up where he takes a good 30 to 40 seconds going up and the same coming down. Um, that's him showing mastery of the position. If the athlete can maintain mastery of the position, then they're ready to go and kip at, at, at any volume. Nico did kip and pull ups max effort for me yesterday. Um, he hit 78. Um, and he's a strong, he's, he's a heavy guy. Like he's, what, he's uh, 92 kg? So, that's great for him. Like, um, if it's someone my size, I would be expecting more. But for him, that's a fantastic number. But that's the first time I've asked him to go max effort on kipping pull-ups um, 
uh, I would say, year and a half. He's not done it. We've not done a periodization to it. All we've done is he's had some time off because of COVID. Uh, he sat down on his Xbox and played Call of Duty, I believe. Uh, he became a professional gamer. He even played with one of Norwegian's number one gamers. And I said, all right, you can just do you. You take your rest period. You do whatever you need to do. And then I think I've had him back on a training phase for about six to seven weeks of basically getting tendons ready to take load. Not load. And as we're coming out the end of this, he's now just hit, I believe he hit like a one, four, five clean push press. He's hit 78 kip and pull-ups. Like he's hitting these numbers now where like, okay, what, now we're getting something that's meaningful. Now we're ready to go into our next phase of training. Um, so, but in the phase of training that he's doing, it wasn't a lot of kipping. The phase of training that he's been doing is, uh, I've actually got it here in front of me. Um, it was a strict pull-up. It was three seconds up, a three-second pause, three seconds down, two-second pause at the bottom for five reps, and it was five sets with a three-minute rest period. Um, so then he's getting strength adaptations. We're taking time in the position. Everything's perfect, and therefore now I've given him kipping back. He's actually, that's the best he's ever done. Um, so it's allowed him to adapt. Um, and, and considering something like that for anyone who may be listening, I don't know if anyone's listening to it or not, but if anyone I'm listening, I can, I'm shit upon it, so I'm listening if no one else um, So how many of people out there do pull-ups on Emons? On the minute, every minute, three strict pull-ups for 10 minutes. How many times do you yeah. see that program? Yeah. Okay, so if I'm working on strength development, this is something we coach from the gymnastics course. If I'm, I'm looking at strength development, I'm looking to get that athlete stronger. If I was to do strength development, so strict pull-ups, let's say, let's change it. Let's say it's back squat. Let's say I was doing five by five back squat. How long would you rest for? Like two and a half minutes. We, we, yeah, we would rest for three to five minutes. At two minutes, you get about 80% recovery because of the energy system you're in. You're in the CP energy system you're using type 2B muscle fiber types. So if you're trying to do strength development of pull-ups and you're doing on the minute every minute and you gain 40 seconds rest, 45 seconds rest, maybe 50 seconds rest, we're not recovering, so therefore we're not developing strength. We're being the same person day in, day out. Yeah. Really good for functional bodybuilding. It worked well for Marcus Philly's like, approach of technique of functional bodybuilding. However, for us in strength development to increase the positional awareness, to increase the strength, to therefore afterwards increase more kip and pull-ups. And Emon's not doing anything for us. We could use an Emon for kip and pull-ups, but I wouldn't be using it for strength. Yeah. And then, like, I suppose just... I kind of see it as just different stages of like, you know, there's like say the beginner who's like trying things out, learning the names of the different things, like practicing them a little bit, you know, like kind of get developing an idea of what the skill is and what the purpose is and, you know, watching other people doing it and stuff. Then just above that, you've got like, you know, me where like Monday it clicks, Tuesday it doesn't, Wednesday it's like, holy shit, I did 10 toes to bar. Thursday it's like, why are my hands so sore? I can't touch the bar. And then when fatigue comes into it, just fucking forget about it. But like then above that, you've got, you know, those kind of consistent people that are like, you know, five sets of five toes, where, yeah, no problem. 10 sets of 10, whatever. Yeah, no problem. Grand. Like they're not phased by the board at all. They're totally fine with it. Then you kind of start moving into those kind of, I guess, proficient and then like circus acts are next, I suppose, where it's just like the elite level of like, yeah, 40 muscles for time or whatever. No problem. Like, yeah. Is it as simple as consistent practice or like, you know, maybe stripping it back to basics as I suppose you just alluded to there. You often hear that thing of like getting your arch and hollow right. And some people who people might view as like, oh, this person's fucking amazing at gymnastics. And then you suddenly hear them saying like, oh, I'm stripping it back and I'm doing like the basics because, you know, never neglect the basics or whatever. 
like is it is it a more layered approach than that to improve from to get from beginner to maybe not circus act but like to be fairly proficient at it or is it a case of like yeah just keep practicing just keep doing the arch the hollow just keep practicing your swing just keep going from the basics to the next step to the next step and back and keep like uh, you mentioned there your strength uh building your strength a lot of strength uh systems start off you know that kind of pyramid approach of like build the base and the the top will get higher or whatever is it the same approach with gymnastics where you build the base you build your your strict strength and then gradually improve up the ranks or is it kind of more layered yeah so uh opening lecture on the gymnastics course first thing that we're going to teach is um uh coaching philosophy uh, like the gymnastics philosophy and the big part of that is strict before kipping so we need to develop a strict movement before kipping movement and from what we previously said the reason being is prevention of injury um if you do not have a strict movement that means you do not have the strength through that muscle tissue and then therefore connective tissue in the joint you will gain an injury if you are kipping for a movement under fatigue and you do not have the strict strength um you will have an injury a great example something completely different um that new motorbike I told you about, I took it up for a ride from Bournemouth all the way up to Dunoon in Scotland to see one of my friends. As I arrived at Dunoon on the ferry, uh, ferry wobbled, I put my leg down, bike was going down. Um, I was basically single leg def- deadlifting uh, 250 kg and I snapped my hamstring, tore my hamstring completely black because I didn't have the strength to do that. I, I, my muscles physically couldn't do it, so I'm going to gain an injury. Yeah. Um, I should have just let the bike go. Um, so if you do not have the strength through a movement, you need to gain that prerequisite strength. And that's where we come into a philosophy of, well, how do we gain that strength? We've got different types of contractions that we can use. So we have isometric contractions, which is where the muscles under load or tension, but the muscle remains the same length. Then we've got eccentric contractions. So the muscles under load or tension, but the muscles lengthening. So like a negative. Yeah. Now with a negative, you're going to get strength adaptations. Um, you're going to get uh, increase of uh, pination angle, increase of fascicle length. Uh, you're going to get hypertrophy of the muscle, so increase the cross-sectional area, but you're going to get neurological adaptation. So then you can get muscle firing. So then we can get a stronger contraction and therefore make an athlete stronger. Now, when we do the eccentric loading, we do have to be careful of the volume because it can lead to things like rhabdo. But in a clever, smart training program, we can then embed that in. But you can also, let's say you've got a novice and you develop an isometric contraction so they get great positions under, under, under tension, whether it's a hollow, hanging hollow, chin above the bar, holding in hollow, then maybe eccentrically loading back down for the strength adaptations. And then after that, when they've done something like that, the next day when they come in, you might put them on the pull-up bar, but they might just work on beat swing so they can find the shapes and the positions on the bar and they're increasing their body awareness, their skill, their cognitive positions. Yeah. Right. Um, that, is, is, and, and it's the same whether that's a novice whether that's a, an intermediate whether it's an advanced athlete if they want to develop the rules apply so then like questions i got sent in i suppose like you i think you've kind of half answered there like the pre is there a prerequisite that you need ticked in your mind before you let someone progress onto kipping is it just that one perfect form in the hollow pull-up yeah so if I can see one perfect form in the hollow pull-up, the, the athlete will progress. If they cannot maintain a perfect position because they do not have the strength, what will happen is that they will change the angle of their body and to be able to achieve the pull-up, they will flare their ribcage and then they will anterior pelt their hips to be able to change the angle of their torso to make the levers shorter to make themselves feel lighter and that's how they're going to pull themselves up. However, it's not going to be as beneficial to the development of the beat swing because if you have an anterior pelvic tilt, the rib cage flared open whilst going through a dynamic movement, 
Newton's law of physics, you will send forces in the wrong direction, and then you're fighting against a super bad swing. That's yeah. when you see these big aggressive shoulder movement happen at the bar instead of a small tight position and everything coming from the rib cage and your arm staying in line with your ear. What you see is this big aggressive shoulder movement and then shoulder injuries happen because the athlete's trying to compromise because they don't have the strength to hold the perfect position initially. Like, I guess that transfers into like muscle ups then. Like, are, if you Absolutely. see, say, if you see someone doing muscle ups and like, you know, they're doing their first muscle up or you know maybe they're just they're just getting it but you see them like chicken winging like you know one arm coming up and kind of leaning over and getting up as a coach would you be like that's excellent let's move on or would you be like yeah okay that's great that you got that now we're going to go back so that 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 particular uh combination of movements never happens again and you get up in a more efficient way or a more better way like yeah, it, um, it depends on the athlete. And this, this is where like a bit more of like the coaching background will come in, mm. um, whether I will reward them or not. It depends on the athlete. It depends on the athlete's mindset. And what I want to develop with the athlete is a growth mindset. And this is taking like research from the um, DWEC, so uh, the growth mindset development within athletes. Um, and what you want to do is you want to reward them for effort, but for not achieving RX. And everyone in CrossFit is rewarding for RX. Well done for achieving that muscle up. Well done for getting your toes to the bar. Um, a good example of this is when I'm on the gymnastics course, I'll get everyone to do a strict toes to bar. Um, I say, you cannot throw your head back. You cannot change the angle at the shoulder. So push the bar away. You can't open your rib cage. You can't anterior pelvic tilt. You can't bend your knee. You can't flip your toe. You can't swing. You can't increase. The- I'd literally Many just be hanging there for the entire <laughs> And literally every, everyone does one of those things. And I'm like, why did you do it? And they're all like, so we can kick the bar so they can achieve RX because they've only ever been rewarded for achieving the RX. So what I want to reward them for is if, and, and occasionally you get the magic people in the group and they hang on the bar. They don't do, they can't do a strict toaster bar, but they maintain all the perfect positions and they get their legs maybe up to the L sit height, halfway or just above. They pause and they bring it back down. I'm like, that's fantastic. I can see how hard you're trying to maintain the best positions, which will give you the development to go through full range of motion later on down the line. And we can then add in a training skill. We can put onto boxes with a bar on a, on a band or on a JPEG, and we can change some stuff up, change the angle of lever to make it easier for the athlete to go through the full range of motion and develop them like that. But you reward them then for the, to to develop a growth mindset. So they're striving for position and perfection rather than just to please me as a coach, because they think all I want is them to achieve RX. And nine times out of 10, if, if any coaches are listening, like your members in your box, like, People want to please people like I, I learned a lot about coaching as well, just by training my dog and he just wants to please me. So when your members come into your box, they, they, they're a little bit unsure. They're a little bit uncertain, but the thing that fills them with like satisfaction, um, maybe in, in regards to Maslow's development is that, um, they want to feel socially included and they want to be rewarded. And, and the best way to do that is they think is to make the coach happy by achieving the RX. And they're like, great work. You've smashed RX. I can see that you've, that you've got that movement as like Mary in the corner at 65 years old. I'm going to reward her for the effort that she's putting in. Like she's not going to be able to maybe ever achieve that movement, but she can do the scales and positions, but she will develop better than maybe one of my best athletes in the corner because he's stuck with the mindset that he only has to achieve RX. So then when he's on a rings, he's throwing his head forward as far as he can and looking down at the floor when he finishes, because that's what everyone else does on social media. And that's the way he thinks he should do it. 
But in fact, I want him to look forward the whole time because every force has an equal and opposite reaction. And if you throw your head forward and your head goes down, the rings are going to swing forward and then your second ring muscle-ups, absolute crap. Yeah. Right. And a great example of that is the long ring straps that they used to have at regionals or at the games. If you see an athlete throwing their head forward and diving their head down towards the floor, those rings are going to travel forward with them. And then the second ring muscle-up, that's going to be chasing rings. Yeah. Um. Handstand push-ups. That's a great quote. I don't don't put that as the quote of this. <laughs> Chasing rings is not the quote. We can't use that one again. <laughs> That's, that'll be the name of the episode. Only in context. <laughs> um, so handstand push-ups. Then uh, why can't I do one? No, seriously. Um, <laughs> if you were if you were designing the standard for competitions, because I think it's got a lot of criticism for the last say two or three variations of the standard. Is there a standard that you, that you have in your head of like, that's the way it should be done? Or do you think it is difficult to kind of level the playing field? Strict, either freestanding or facing the wall. Ideally facing the wall, toes up against the wall. You'll start with nose and toes on the wall. You're eccentrically controlled down. Your head will have to come away from the wall. So you create a pyramid position at the bottom. You can then peek yourself toes off the wall so you're in a freestanding headstand and then come back up. Now that's going to be different, difficult for like intensity at workouts. So then. Um, that's part of training, but I would like to see that come into competition as well. Um, you can put, you know, the uh, you know the plastic they put up for the handstand push-ups yeah. between the rig, the games. Um, you just cut that higher, and you basically measure the athlete's head height, and then you have plastic above that, so it's freestanding hip and handstand push-ups. Feet got to hit the target at the top. They come back down into a tuck, but if they lose a bounce at the bottom, they're forward roll out, and they they, they got to reset and go again. So they they should be learning freestanding handstand push-ups, I think, and I feel. Um, but for the standard, for instance, open, um, I know that people, every seminar, I'll get the question about Hetner, where he says that he can't do a strict handstand push-up. So then I demonstrate a strict handstand push-up where I put my fingers and thumbs touching. I go into a handstand against the wall, so I have like a diamond shape between my fingers and thumbs. I'll create a break so that I keep a straight arm, my head moves away from the arms. I go to a pyramid position, I press back up. Um, and I prove the point that even if I had a, a higher line like he does, you can still achieve the movement standard. You just have to train in closer hand position. If he was to take his hands a little bit closer and closer to the wall, he would more than easy go above that line. So therefore, the bad training of the hands wide, too far away from the wall, arching the back, anterior pelvic tilt, bending the knee, all those things is going to take us away from achieving what would be that RX. So the standard within like a, a CrossFit open for a handstand push-up really can be anything, and they all do really work as long as you've got a good handstand push-up you can change what you need. If they say it's a strict handstand push-up and you've got to stay within the box, well, with my tiny little levers, I'm just going to press these things out and it's no problem at all. So for a taller athlete, it may be more difficult. But then as soon as you get the, the measurement of the wrist, minus three inches, add on the size of your nose and then your big toe and add the chain, all those little things that they're adding in, it's just a way to be able to look at what we coach on the seminar is the cubic distance across, which is elbow to fingertip or elbow to your knuckle you want to be having your hands that distance apart when you're training your handstand push-ups. If you train that, any standard that they're going to give you in the games or open, you're going to be able to do them. So then when you set up parallel bars for strict handstand push-ups or kipping handstand push-ups, those parallel bars want to be that cubic distance across also, so that fingertip to elbow. And then you're not training it too wide, you're training it for a full functional range of motion. And guess what? That dip uh, that that uh, push dip across is the same for your dips. It's the same for your push-ups. It's the same for uh, a bench press. It's the same transferable position. It's the same for a push press, a jerk. 
and then you're working through the same plane of motion and you, your shoulders are happy yeah. you're preventing injuries but you're also getting strong through that range of motion yeah. so th the standard for the open uh, i'm happy to take anything but i'm also a very short leave it athlete sticking with handstands then what in your opinion is the best way to improve foot position on the handstand walk so it was a coach that sent this in actually of like improving someone else's hands, like someone else's foot position while their hands are walking. Cool. Okay. Um, I always want them to point their toes. The reason why we're pointing our toes is like a neurological release down through the leg. It allows the athlete to then lock out the knee. If the athlete has the toe pulled down towards their face, if they have a tight hamstring, they're actually putting more stress down the sciatic nerve and it's going to cause a little bend of that knee. And we want active tissue through the body. So I want them to point their toes and reach them as high as they possibly can push as tall as they can through the floor to get those feet even higher. So toe position and foot position is pointing those toes as high as they can. Now, I want them to squeeze their feet together so that we create more active tissue. And there's a drill that we do on the course where we call it a fist spot. And I put the fist between the thighs of the athlete with my arms straight and they crush as hard as they can with their thighs. And all of a sudden everything straightens up because they've created good active tissue. But then what I want them to start thinking about is where, where we do CrossFit. Um, how often do you hear the cue drive your knees out wide? Yeah. Like all the freaking time, like wall balls, box jumps, you've got clean and jerk, snatch, jerk, like everything, they're driving the knees out wide. So we, we overly externally rotate the hip within CrossFit. But if what we actually want to do here is we want to create some internal torque. And I ideally, if I can with these feet, and we're thinking about those feet, can I get the athlete to touch the inside of their feet together? Because it will allow the rest of the internal torque through the leg as they're pushing their feet as high as they can to yeah. create more tension. Um, now, as I say that, go and watch a gymnast, look at their feet, they're pointing their toes, they're squeezing the inside of their feet together, they're creating leg tension together, and they stand in a very straight like bolt line. Now, if you, if you just put yourself against the wall, you would feel the difference. And then if you were to let your feet turn out a little bit, separate a little bit, and then pull your toes down towards the face, you'll feel the stress and the lack of tension, which will just completely change everything up in the shoulders. And would you, like, would you be wanting your athletes or people you're coaching to be doing that in a workout where it's like 50 foot handstand walk to have like cool cool yeah I, I like that question it's a similar question we get at the weekends um it actually comes back to uh my learning curve for this development i, I always say there's a difference between training and competing uh, and yeah. my learning curve to be able to answer the question to you what i would say sometimes on the weekend is um that time i told you about when uh, laura came to vienna and she did the seminar with me she did a workout, uh, I believe it was in the morning before the seminar. It was day two of the seminar, the day where I normally teach the handstands. And she was doing a workout, which was a 90D ball carry. I think it was 50 foot into a 25 foot handstand walk. And she had horrendous shape on this handstand walk. Like feet all the way over the top, like proper CrossFit Games handstand walk. The one that some coaches go and say you should be achieving because everyone does it at the CrossFit Games, which isn't the case. Um, another great example of CrossFit Games this year, they all did this shape. But the reason why they did this shape isn't because it's more effective. The reason why she did that shape is because she was doing a D-ball carry and she was carrying a heavy D-ball around her chest, blowing out her lats. Her lats were the main contraction to be able to hold that D-ball in place. Now, if you think about the origin insertion of the lat, that's going to bring that shoulder slightly forward. Now, if that shoulder's slightly forward, that athlete to be able to find any balance is going to have to open up the rib cage then they're going to have to then try and look at the floor because they don't know where they are within space because everything's changed and their feet come over the top of them to be able to create balance. The reason why she was doing such a bad position isn't because she got a bad position on a handstand walk. It's because her lats were blown out from the workout. Yeah. 
So when it comes to a workout for training, I will then try and couple any training or any handstand work to be completely separate for development. So only handstand walks with that app, not in a workout. But if I do program it within a workout, I'm trying to put it in workouts where I don't do it where the lap shortening, the shoulders tightening, so we can still maintain good position under fatigue. And then when I want to test workouts, I will then put in like, I don't know, toes to bar, row, hands down walks or something where I'm going to blow these laps out. And then to see what position they can maintain under fatigue. Yeah. And so, like I said, with the CrossFit Games, if you looked at the guys, the CrossFit Games, can't remember the workout exactly, but it had like kettlebell push press and rowing in it yeah, yeah. into a handstand walk. And everyone had a beautiful scorpion shape. It's not because it was the effective shape. It's not what we want to be coaching. The reason being is they've just blown their lats and shoulders out. They've got nothing left. So they're trying to sit into whatever they've got left. And that's going to be their lumbar spine. Yeah. And the athlete who has great position. Um, I actually had Ike Guilfordor to message me after that uh, workout. And I've worked with her for a little bit on her handstand stuff. And she's a very good coach. She's a very good athlete. She's very self-aware. And I, I reckon we only did like six weeks of work just to increase our awareness of like, these are the drills you want to be doing. And, and she's very self, self like determined to manage herself from that afterwards. But yeah, like that workout was a great example of why athletes walk on their hands like that is not because it's more efficient because they're blown out from everything else they've done. Yeah. Um, with the rings then. So like say if someone can do a pull up on the rings, they can do a dip on the rings. They can do a swing on the rings, but can't do a muscle. Up. Like, I think you kind of see the same on the bar, but like this might just be purely, me talking but i think it has to come into it a bit that kind of psychological block or the kind of i suppose that it's a very difficult type of muscle memory to build up like it's very difficult you know like if you can do an air squat you can build up that muscle memory that you'll need to add weight to you know the kind of the experience is there the feeling is there that you know what it feels like to go down and what's too far and what's not far enough and stuff but if you're trying to get your muscle up for the first time, or if you're still new to doing muscle ups, there kind of might be that psychological block where, like, I know we see it a lot in our gym where, you know, maybe in the open there might be muscle ups, and you'll have that thing where it's like, oh my God, you were definitely high enough. You just needed to do this last little thing, and it's just not clicking. How much of uh, gymnastics do you think uh, is kind of stilted by people's maybe mental blocks or like a, a kind of a fear of failure or a fear of like, you know, I don't know, falling or hurting yourself. So um, I find with athletes who come in, and I'm, t- when I, I'm going to refer to people as athletes still. Um, everyone I refer to CrossFit as athletes, but they may be the member, they may be the client, they're not an athlete. And I, uh, we're going to say that an athlete is anyone who competes at the games or maybe a sh- sanctioned event. But for now, if I say athlete, um, I'm referring to your members. So yeah. I'll say members to make it clearer. Oh my um, God, I'm an athlete. Yeah. So I'm going to say that because I say this on the course as well is like, uh, how many athletes do we have in our gym? And actually we have members and clients. We don't have athletes. You may have one athlete in your region, but we're all members and clients. We call them the athlete to help increase exercise adherence. That's why they still refer to them as the athlete because it helps them buy in a little bit more. But um, let's say, so we've got our members in our development. Um, they, They want to achieve a movement. Um, there may be some mental block. There may be a, like a, a something blocking them from doing it, but it depends on what, how young they are, I find, and also what previous experience they got doing other things. Like if they did gymnastics as a kid, you normally find they got greater confidence to jumping on the rings. If, if I've got a 45-year-old guy and he was really able up to the age of 20 and he's done nothing for the last 15 years, 
like his confidence in himself is is lesser and his his muscle memory of doing any of these kind of movements which may have any relevance maybe climbing a tree or something is com almost completely gone so it's, it's building something up from there so but the first question is does he have the physical capabilities um and then i would then look at the psychosocial element so uh, is it a, a psychological issue of him trying to get up on the rings um is it a, a social like um influence is, is there pressure in the room which then makes it like a a bigger holy grail that pushes them away from it. Um, but normally I would always start with the, the physical capabilities because one, it's going to prevent the injury and two, it's going to help increase confidence. So if I got an athlete who wants to achieve a bar muscle up, let's say I go and see a member. She's a 28 year old member. Uh, she's been doing CrossFit for two years, but she can't do a bar muscle up, but she wants to do a bar muscle up. A very typical CrossFitter for us. Um, how long has she spent on top of the bar in that catch position? How long has she been up there for? Have yeah. you made it spend time holding that position on top? Yeah. Normally I get the answer of saying, well, she's not been up there. She's trying to get up there, but she's not been up there. But what we should be doing is going through drills and positions. So I like a jumping bar muscle up. And on the course, I'll teach you a way to, uh, to understand the head path, a bit like a bar path in Olympic weightlifting. There's a head path we're looking to achieve within the bar muscle up. And there's a specific way of moving up onto that bar, uh, which is going to one, prevent injury. And, and it's our optimum, like virtuous position or what we want to go through and there's breakdowns from it but can the athlete perform that by using a box on a jumping bar muscle up now normally in a jumping bar muscle up, we're still seeing a bad head bar but we also coach in the gymnastics course that we should be holding all positions for two minutes we want to hold hollow for two minutes arc for two minutes because let's say for instance if you can only hold a hollow on the floor for 30 seconds um if I was to put you on a bar and you were to hang in hollow, how long would you be able to hang in hollow for if you can only do 30 seconds on the floor? Yeah, that's... Okay, I'll be generous. I'll say about 10 seconds. Okay, so if you do 10 seconds, and I'm considering you might have one strict pull-up. So if you can do 10 seconds hanging in hollow on the bar, how many kip and pull-ups can you do in 10 seconds before your movement breaks down because your shape's gone? Yeah. Let's say two to three reps. You've got two to three reps in and you drop down. Two to three reps in, drop down. If I can make you hang in hollow for two minutes and chin above the bar separately, for two minutes how many kip and pull-ups can you now do in two minutes yeah. you can do all of them so if we take it back to a ring muscle up or a bar muscle up how much time have we spent on top of that bar well let's make sure that everyone can hold the position there let's accumulate two minutes let's then do a minute unbroken now let's accumulate three minutes now let's get two minutes unbroken now at the bottom of dip on the bar now hanging in hollow at the bottom of the bar now we're going to look at the movement of the jumping on the bar by doing that, you're going to then be increasing the confidence and therefore the psychological issues that that athlete may have without having to become a sports psychologist and coach them through a bar muscle up. You're still focusing on the physical development. Yeah. If there is a big issue after that, uh, for instance, I've had, had a lady who uh, actually became an online client of mine, Nina, lovely lady in Germany. She was a seminar with me, Reebok CrossFit Nuremberg in Germany. Um, we were going upside down into handstands. I turn around, quick drink, facing the room again, and she's in floods of tears. And I don't know what's going on. And the reason why is that I've just taught everyone how to do a handstand, and I'm allowing everyone to go and have a little play, and she's petrified of going upside down. Yeah. So there is actually a barrier that we're going to have to work through. Yeah. Um, and through programming, we've got her upside down, and she can do the work no problem at all. So then I, by giving her the physical training broken down, it's going to break down that that psychological issue. So us as CrossFit coaches, one is what is our scope of practice? Am I a psychologist or am I a coach? I'm a coach. So I can implement things across, but I'm still going to focus on that physical development. So I would always say to, to, 
to cycle 10 minutes back to your question, um, physical development over psychological issues. Yeah. Um, I think strength then, like strength is uh, like, it's, it's another interesting area. It's obviously an important area. It's strong links with gymnastics as well. But like, I suppose there's so many schools of thought, like even just like say on volume or cycles or peaks or deloads or, you know, I say in our gym, we tend to do like four weeks of like kind of hypertrophy, like, you know, high, high reps. And then we follow on that time frame like four week blocks. So we do, you know, maybe sets of 10 for four weeks, then eight, then fives, then threes. Then we might test and go back then to the start again. I know other gyms do like different rep schemes or they do different like periodization and stuff. Like, so there's no, you know, like, is, is there is there a right way? Because you also see, like, insane fucking volume then, you know, like, German volume training and stuff. Like, is there is there a right way, or do you think it's based on the coach's personal experience and how they've filtered, like, their own education and, what like, what best practice they think is? Or do you just think there's a lot yeah, of wrong ways and a lot of right ways? Um, I think if you're doing something to make an improvement in someone, there's no wrong way. Like we need to have the gas syndromes and we need to have the adaptations. We want to be looking at what we're putting into things. Like there's many things that we can get bogged down in, but I see many people get over bogged down in like with like uh, conjugated and undulating and like all these different like training systems, like just make them move better mm. um, for, for strength development. And, and that's where I come from purely with all my athletes. First of all, primary is the movements. And I refer this to as shapes. Um, but yeah, you can, you can design the best training program, but if they move like shit, they're going to be shit. That's, yeah. it's, it's as simple as that. Um, there's, there's a weightlifting coach who I work very closely with. He's a great friend. Um, he's, a, he's a great individual and he's a more than great weightlifting coach. And we're actually secretly working on something very magic for coaching development now uh, within weightlifting. Um, as much as I coach the gymnastics course and it's been my main exposure to the community, um, I do fare myself as a very good weightlifting coach. Um, I would actually say within my athletes and the athletes who work with me closely might even say that I'm a better weightlifting coach than gymnastics coach. Um, I weightlift myself. I, I understand the movement. I have movement and weightlifting. Um, uh, I, I've developed my snatch to a good snatch for my body weight. I'm very, I'm very pleased with what I've developed with my own weightlifting. But the key focus on all of that hasn't been about what percentages, volumes, intensities I'm doing all the time. It's been about how I move. Um, and the best way to ex explain it and to see it is, and, and the way I get my athletes to move is, can you do a back squat? Um, everyone hopefully can do a back squat and I want to develop them for Olympic lifting. Let's say a guy comes in, he's new to your gym. And, and, and this is kind of where we're going with Justin. It's Justin Holly, the weightlifting coach. And so he's got a, a new guy who's coming to the gym, but he's done CrossFit before. And he says, uh, I got a 115 clean and jerk. Um, and uh, an X and X snatch. And you go, okay, 115 clean jerk, right? Gives me an idea of what he's working at. He's like, I got a 200 kg back squat. And you're like, cool. So you've got a surplus of squat. There are um, some references that we can, we can reference percentages of what an athlete will be able to clean and snatch if their biochemical movements are perfect and good in position in re relevance to their back squat. So if he tells me that he's got a 200 kg back squat, but 115 clean jerk, something doesn't match up here. So either he's lying or he moves poorly. So you ask him to do a back squat. And in relation to that 115 kg clean and jerk, if you consider the percentage of what it should be, his relative back squat is 150. So if he came and told me I've got 150 back squat and I've got 115 clean and jerk, that's bang on the money. Those numbers match up to the percentage. 
So then I go, all right, then show me your back squat. So he warms up. He goes 100, 120, 140. Everything's moving great. Then 150, everything's moving great. 160, something's not right. 170, not right. 180, not great. It burns my eyes to watch the 200, but he gets it out somehow. His usable strength is the 150. He's got unusable strength at 200 in relation to Olympic weightlifting, but his usable strength is 150, which is where those percentages match up. So as a coach, instead of spending more time on his Olympic weightlifting, I just have to make his back squat move better at 160, at 170. And then we can transfer that into lifting straight away. Um, and the best way to be able to understand to do that is does his, does his concentric movement look exactly the same as his eccentric movement. And you can apply this to gymnastics and you play this to weightlifting. When the athlete goes down through a position, because you're stronger eccentrically than you are concentrically, so as the athlete goes down through that back squat, as they come up, do they lean forward? Do their hips tilt? Do their knees wobble? Does something change? Or do they come down through that back squat and come straight back up, identically the same as the eccentric? If I see I, uh, eccentric and concentric being the same, I know that that athlete can control that weight, master that position. They're ready to go heavier. If they cannot go heavier, and this is the key focus where Laura's at with her lifting at the moment, is can I make her do her one rep max back squat, but in the shape that I want it, not in the shape of, and then can I make that usable strength? If anyone watched her at Rogue Invitational, she had a sticky point in the middle of her clean. As she's driving out of her clean, she catches it, she comes up, and then there's like someone put the brakes on, and then she gets out to the top. She's got more than enough strength in a jerk, so it's not a problem in a jerk, but I want to get her to a weight on a clean where we're stressing her jerk, but she can't do it. So I've watched her do a 130 kg cleaning jerk, and there's no issue with it at all because she was fresh and she's come out fast out of the squat. But if she's on a, like day two of a competition, which Rogue was day two of a competition, and she's tired in those legs, I've got to work on something about that usable strength and getting that, that back squat heavier or that front squat heavier, but with a good movement. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. Like I did back squat yesterday. And I'm just thinking how none of my <laughs> none of my standing up was the same as any of my sitting down. <laughs> it's just like yeah, it's exactly. Just... It's quick, and it, and it's that simple. Video from the side. Have a look. Yeah. Um. How often do you think with strength then? And I I guess the gymnastics as well. Um. How often do you think that like a t there should be a test like how often should the average person test their one rep max or test their three rep max or test their max strip pull-ups or whatever okay um so nico had a test recently that's more for him than it is for me yeah um so it depends on your athlete um i am a, not a big fan of one rep maximal tests unless it's like going into a competition or uh, the athlete needs it for a psychological development um, to let them know that that weight's there for them. If uh, Laura the other day she did something like uh, uh, it was like ninety seven percent for four or five singles. I can't remember exactly without getting the program out. But if she's doing ninety seven percent for four or five singles, like she's got a new war at max. I don't need to push her beyond that limit. I'm going to then change and adapt some stuff. She did like a low hang pause with ninety five percent, like. That's telling me that the one rep max isn't a one rep max anymore. I could ask her to do a one rep max. I did before, and I've learned by asking her to do a one rep max. Sometimes she overthinks things. You need to be there with her. And if I'm away and it's online, and if Joao's not around to be in the room and there's different things going on, it's easier for me not to program that one rep max. So yeah. I would say one rep maxes don't have to be often, and, that, and that's probably on the elite end because they're not going to come often. But 
if you're working with people in your gym, like, and they've been doing CrossFit for six months, I wouldn't program the one rep max. I would say like build to a heavy. So we're going to do like a periodization. Now we're going to build to a heavy triple. Great. And that's like clean, drop the bar, clean, drop the bar, clean, drop the bar. Great. I'm not like tap and go like triple. And then I might build them to a single heavy. And that day it allows them the opportunity to go to one rep max. But I also like to use RPE of like rate of perceived exertion. So I had Suna message me the other day. She had percentage in a training program. She said how she felt like she was moving bad. She was, she was doing a great job, but she didn't feel right. So I said, okay, forget the percentages. The percentage was 80%. I want RPE 8. That's all I want today. And we, we can change it day by day depending on how you feel. Percentages don't have to be the be all and end all. Um, and, and work that way with it. So I, I wouldn't program like a one rep max too often. Yeah, I like that. Um, I think as well, like the important thing, like you say, is that I, I think something I started doing recently is like, you know, say in our training, we might do five by five and it's like aim for like, you know, 80% or whatever, aim for whatever percent of your basketball or whatever on your last set, you should be in or around there somewhere just as a guide is kind of how it's put to us. Like, but I think there is a danger. I know I, I've definitely been guilty of it in the past. I'd be like, right, fuck this, come hell or high water. I'm getting 80%, minimum 80% of my basketball on that last set to my own detriment. And I think lately I've kind of started being like, okay, I might not get, like, I'm a bit tired, like, I might, you know, I'll just see how I go and I kind of start step loading or whatever. Like, some days I might walk away a bit pissed off because I'd be like, oh, I should have started, like, my first set of five should have been heavier, I could have handled it later on, or I might walk away being like, geez, thank God I didn't, like, go as heavy as I planned because whatever, like, so I think that thing of, there's definitely a psychological block for some people. Some people thrive on that. Like some people need that. You know, you're testing your one at max in two months' time. Like you need to fucking train, and it'll drive them on. But I know I wilt if there's a test. Like I'll start, like you said about lower there. I'll start overthinking everything, being like, "Fuck, how do I do a back squat? Like, what if I, you know, like I start the minutia just overweigh me, and I just fall apart." So I think I like that thing of like perceived exertion i think it's a good it's a good tool to have in your in your toolbox or whatever um is there then with gymnastics and strength is there a common mistake that you see that you wish that if every every member of every gym is walking in the door that you could be there to say don't do this when this comes up don't do it like is there a common mistake that you see across the board that you're like, oh, why does everyone do that in gymnastics? Or oh, why does everyone do that in the strength training or the programming of it? Uh, yeah, we've got another hour. Or... <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's many things. Like I, I, I'm very open to the fact that um, I could walk into a gym and I get to walk into different gyms all the time every weekend. And I could walk into a gym and the person in front of me has only been coaching level one i've done the level one and only been coaching maybe six weeks they're learning people will learn along the way so i'm not judging them from any point like that because if i walk in with one of my staff or like let's say i'm going to a seminar there's 30 people in the course i bring in two assistants with me um i know one of them will look at me and kind of wait to see my reaction my face and i hold it in i'm like it's all right they're learning i'll leave them to it but um there's, there's, there's a couple of things that I would, would say. One is, remember we're doing CrossFit. And why are we doing CrossFit? And what is CrossFit? So I walk into a gym and I look at the board and I see a coach stood by the board and everyone's moving, doing something. But the coach really hasn't moved away from the board for the whole session. And the reason being that 
he's a new coach and he's having to coach the program that the head coaches program for them. And he's put part A, part B, part C. And the reason being is that he doesn't know how to coach either. So what they do is they hide their inability to coach with high volume of programming. But CrossFit's one workout a day. So what we want to do is we want to coach people through those things and develop them that one thing to get better. So I would always say in relation to gymnastics, if you're doing gymnastics, we're coaching the gymnastics of that session to be able to move well, which may be used in the workout, or we are doing strength development or that gymnastic element that day. And that is it. And, 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 and stick to one workout a day. And it means that doing less will actually do more. Um, and I think that's a big thing. The other one is something I already mentioned is an emon. If it's gymnastics, I'd probably remove an emon unless, and you, and you want to use an emon for like uh, class control and time control. I would do minute one strict pull-ups. Minute two, I would then get them to go into, I don't know, a couch stretch because everyone's got tight hip flexors from the previous day. Minute three, I'm going to get everyone to do 15 no monies for lower trap stabilization and scapulars. And then a minute rest and then minute four or back to minute one would be the strict pull-ups again. So I'm allowing the athletes in the class to be coached through the strict pull-ups and talk to them as they go through. They're getting strength adaptations from the rest period. We're doing a couple of other useful things in between. We could do that for like 12, 16 minutes or something. And they're actually going to get stronger and better from doing that rather than doing just on the minute, every minute strict pull-ups, if that makes sense. What was, what was the movement you said you get them to do? Uh, it's no money. So basically, um, I'm not going to stand up, actually, because I'm, I'm wearing budgie smugglers. So I, was, I was by the swimming pool. It's, a, it's only an audio podcast. I mean, I don't want to oh, see people, but it's only so, an audio podcast. I'm wearing my budgie smugglers. But basically, you get your elbows tight into your side. I'll take like a thorough band or like a small band, and my palms will be facing to the sky. But the reason why we call it no money is you know when you go up to your friend who never pays for anything, and you yeah. say, hey, buddy, you got any money? And he puts his hands in his pockets, and then he goes, sorry, buddy. And it's like that kind of movement, yeah. hands going out wide. I've got no money. And he's like, again. So it, no money is this way. You just squeeze his elbows in tight, hands go out wide, and it's like, oh, i got no money. Got no I love money. that. Um, That's amazing. No monies. Yeah. That's good. Um, okay. I have two last questions then. So first one, what's the most impressive change that you've seen in one of the athletes that you coach or have coached? Uh Nika has always been that number one for me. Um, Sunna's always there, been with him side by side. But to take Nico from patella tendinopathy, can't back squat, can't squat, to then I think we went uh, in that first training stage, we did rehabilitation. We rehabilitated his knee. He didn't really do any back squats or anything. So we loaded up and strengthened his posterior chain. He did a lot of eccentric snatch deadlifts. He did a lot of like good mornings. He did a lot of posterior chain work. We did some lunges, but not too heavy not too low um we did uh eccentric um plate knee going forward for like patellotendinopathy loading um and then we got him into like a periodization of building up the snatch and i think after that he hit from what was a 111 snatch to a 124 snatch um because he was allowed to use his knee so like yeah. that was that's more than just training and coaching that was the ability to rehabilitate him and then take him through. But his, his journey from start to finish, to, to go to the games, to win physics and country again this, this year, to the, what would have been going to the games, to break the top 100, like the goals that he's been setting. And I think he's, I think he's never not hit a goal that he's set with me. Um, that's and that, and that's, he's, he's a special guy for that. Yeah. Um, the last one then is more of a business opportunity. So I have a seven-month-old. Uh, when do I start her on pull-ups? And then, and pun very much intended on this, maybe you could take her under your wing 
and then it could be like big bird, big bird, little chick gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. I like it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, have uh, Have you seen Savan um, from CrossFit Media's children? Um, he's got an Instagram account called Three Brothers Playing. No. Uh, it's the Three Brothers Playing or Three Playing Brothers, something like that. Um, and you can watch his kids from the ages of maybe five, six, four, and two. And they are at CrossFit HQ or in his garage, running around, jumping from object to object, hanging off um, parallel bars or pull-up bars. Like, as soon as they can walk, as soon as they can grab onto something, um, let them do it. Like, the thing we spoke about earlier on with a, um, a open mindset, uh, his video is a great example of that. His son's on a, like a climbing frame. He's about to fall down. He's just encouraging. He's like, hey, great. Do your best. Do what you want. If you want to come down, come. And then it, like the kid swings and achieves it. And he rewards him. He says, I can see how hard you tried for that. Instead of just rewarding him for achieving to get across. Yeah, yeah. So there's some like great natural coaching things for the coaches to watch on there. But if you watch those kids running around, like jumping, they're, they're, they're from like a, off a box to a D ball. They're jumping. They're probably jumping better than I can with my torn calf and hamstring at the moment. Um, or even like Kara Saunders, like Scotty Saunders on the on the assault runner. It's like yeah, I can't use one of them, and she's used yeah, to. It's crazy, right? Like yeah. I, I feel like any exposure that you can give them to any age. There's like many people are saying like there's time too young to be able to load people with barbells. There's loads of research coming out, and I know my ex partner. She's actually doing a research into weightlifting within youth about like um, when they can actually start training, and, and it's way younger than what we think it is. Um, obviously they're moving in technique first, but actually we can, they, they are, there are development phases, but with gymnastics, you get kids turning up at gymnastics. I think my mum dropped me off at tumble tots when I was two into gymnastics by the time I was four, just cause she wanted me out of the house. So like, I was rolling around grabbing stuff. So if you've got like a, a low set of bar or like a climbing frame, even like the stairs, I don't know if you can see the stairs behind me, yeah, yeah. where they got the poles, they're holding to stuff like, I reckon they're ready to hold themselves. First, first step development is isometric contraction. Can they hold? Yeah. How long can they hold for? And then can they hold themselves up the top? And then can they control themselves back down? And can they run around a little bit and jump and land? Yeah, definitely. Anything. And they're ready to go. I think Tumble Tots is a cool name, but it's definitely not Big Bird Little Chick. Like that's... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, listen, Nathan, thanks a million for coming on. I really no appreciate problem. it. I'm privileged to have been your first uh, to pop your podcast, Cherry. <laughs> it's yeah, been great. Absolutely, thank you.